my first time trying to do an eviction or get somebody out. So this was very early on in my real estate career uh, before I had the property management company or anything like that. I mean, this was, this was like doors number, you know, four and five. It was a little duplex that we bought and uh, we went into it. One unit was vacant and the other unit had a tenant in there that was behind and the tenant was on the lease. And I was like, listen, man, just, just pay your leave. And he decided to go ahead and leave. And then I go in there to take possession of the unit back. And his brother is living in the basement who happened <laughs> to be, happened to be a, uh, a little bit of a drug addict. So, <laughs> so I go in there and we're trying to, trying to get him out, trying to talk to him. Uh, you know, he won't answer my phone calls. Um, you know, we go in there and, uh, you know, like, okay, we'll just, we'll just change the locks on him. Right. And then, cause he's not on the lease now, very green at this point, hadn't read any of the laws or anything like that and learned that was a, a big no, no, apparently. <laughs> I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I've got Colin Douthit with me today. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Doing great. Just another uh, beautiful rainy day here in Kansas City, so can't complain. Rainy days. What is it? April showers bring May flowers, right? Yeah, I think we're into April showers now, so we're ready for the flowers and some more warm weather. So do me a favor, man. Tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into this space of multifamily. Yeah. So uh, by trade, I'm an engineer, did the whole engineering school thing, played uh, college football, had all that fun. I did engineering for about seven years, uh, construction related, mainly project management, estimating. Um, the corporate world decided that they uh, wanted to part with me. So I just decided I never wanted to go back. Uh, I was under contract on my first multifamily building when that happened and said, you know what, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's see what we can do. And it's pretty much brought me to where I am today. Uh, started out as an investor, then started doing my own rehabs, got my own rehab crews going, started my own property management company, and now we're here. That's a lot. How long has it taken you to do all that? that we're a little over three years now, three and a half years in. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. We've gone, uh, we've, we, we hit the uh, full throttle pretty quickly. Wow. All right. So what positions you play? I'm a college football player as well. All right. Uh, I was an offensive tackle. Oh man. Okay. I was a so, lot. What about you? I play outside linebacker. Outside linebacker. Okay. Enough of that though. So <laughs> you're, you're taking over Kansas city by storm, right? I'm trying to. I'm trying to. One step at a time. One uh, one rental property at a time. So let's talk about some of these things that you've learned on the journey. Is you know you guys have been working on this pro progress and process. Yeah. So the the first one I'll start with is is as an owner, and when we were purchasing some properties, so we bought a, a package of single family homes, and we decided, hey, 
you know, it's got decent cash flow. We'll just cash flow these rehabs as these units come available, right? This, you know, we were still pretty young about a year into it. And so we bought this package of 16 homes. And once we started managing them appropriately, our vacancy rate went up because people are like, no, I don't want to pay. The previous owner was a terrible landlord. And so everybody was deferred maintenance. Everybody was just done. So we started getting higher vacancies. And so that made cash flowing the rehabs much harder. And, you know, from that point, we've just worked to, you know, every time we would get a little bit of cash flow, we'd put it into one property and then get it rented. And we were getting higher rents every time. So it was great. But when you have 16 properties that have a ton of deferred maintenance, it's really hard to get ahead of it and then to take profit out of it. Right. So it's essentially just been pouring everything any cash, any free cash flow this, that these properties generate get put right back into the property. So did you buy that as a JV or syndication? How'd you guys buy the property? Uh, yeah, I've got a partner on it. I've got a partner on it. So Okay. And so yes. you are still in the process. I, and I think the thing that most people don't really understand when they get into these rehab projects is the cash flow is great for servicing the debt if you can stay occupied enough. But where would you call your vacancy on this property right now? 35% probably. Yeah. So 30, 30%. Uh, it's, it's, it's high and, and you're right. When we bought it, we could sustain, cause we got them at such a good price. We could sustain probably a 50% vacancy and still make all of our obligations, which has been really good. Cause you know, we've, you know, we've flirted with that periodically and I don't think we've ever gotten as low as 50%, but just knowing that, you know, if we could cash flow all the rehabs at, uh, you know, with two vacancies out of 16, when you're sitting with six vacant or something like that, that just changes the whole dynamics. Yeah. It's skeptical when people say, Hey, we're going to do a renovation play. We're going to rehab the units. And then they put in a 10% vacancy on their pro forma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how you do both, but maybe the unit count that I've encountered hasn't been big enough where you can do that. But the flip side of that is how long is it going to take you to get through your renovations? Exactly. Yeah. So those are the two things. I mean, we could, I, I know the market well enough that we can get them occupied really quickly. So that's, that's not an issue. Like it, vacancy because of, um, you know, just, just general vacancy isn't an issue. The vacancy we have is all due to properties not being up to the quality that we want them to be, to be rentable. Wow. So not even rentable quality, not that you're trying to make them better. They're just not in rentable quality. Yeah. So the, I mean, the whole, the whole goal was a reposition of this, this whole asset. And, you know, we're like, okay, this is going to be a low C. We're going to take it up to a high C, low B, right? It's in a, it's in a, a small town outside Kansas city. So we're like, okay, well, this will be an easy reposition. And it really doesn't take $30,000 to rehab one of these units, right? But we're looking at $15,000 or if we need to get a new roof or a new HVAC, they just start to, you know, it all starts to add up across the whole portfolio of the houses. So what's been the financial impact and other collateral damage associated with this challenge? There hasn't been a ton of negative financial impact other than we've essentially got zero ROI off of it for 18 months now. Was that part of the plan? Not necessarily. No, we were planning on, on being able to get the occupancy up, get it up, you know, 
have maybe one vacancy and then try to do a cash out refi and, you know, just, just kind of rock and roll and put everything into the next property. But that hasn't happened yet. Uh, and then also being in a, in a smaller tertiary market, it's making, you know, um, a refinance a little bit more challenging. So we're in the process of trying to do a cash out refi because we came in with a really good LTV. You know, we came in at 60, 65% LTV awesome. based upon, based upon the appraisals. So, you know, we're trying to work to do a refinance, but now given the current market conditions and the fact that this is a smaller town, a lot of the big banks in Kansas city don't want to touch it. So we're stuck with limited options on some of the smaller rural banks, which are also getting us, you know, our terms aren't as favorable, which is another thing, another lesson learned. We never got a hard LOI on what our bank terms were going to be. We had gotten a verbal that we were going to get a 20 year amortization. And then the closing table, we got a 15. Ooh. Yeah. Changes your debt service. It really does. It really does. So, you know, this was a big, a big lessons learned all the way across the board. Wow. So what process changes have you guys made in order to make sure this doesn't happen again? Well, really it's, if we're going to do a project like this and you know, I've done it before on a reposition of six duplexes on on another LLC that we have is take out a construction loan. Don't try to cash flow it. You know, my biggest lesson learned was was take out take out a construction loan and then have your back end financing, at least a really good idea of where it's going to come from. Okay, so the mm-hmm. permanent debt kind of the takeout already negotiated before you start. Yeah, and even if you don't have that, at least know that you've got a decent option to roll into. If the, if the bank that's doing it says, hey, we'll give you six months or twelve months or whatever for your construction period, and then we'll roll you into a a 20 year fixed product. At least you've got that on the back end, despite, you know, knowing that, Hey, well, I'd really like to have a 25 or a 30 year amortization depending on the property. Uh, yeah. So those, those two things between the, the high vacancy and the no construction loan, and then the, um, the amortization getting shortened at the last minute really kind of made this deal a challenge. So you guys going to stay in it or what's the plan for the deal? Yeah, we're going to stay in it. We're working through it right now. We're, uh, still shopping around for additional lenders to uh, try to refinance it, put us into a construction loan. We've got, we've got some opportunities to start working with more of a, of a broker instead of going directly to the banks. So it'll cost us a little bit to use the broker, but we'll at least get something done. I like it. I mean, (laughs) those brokers should be earning it, right? I mean, if they can get, depending on the size of the loan, if they can Mm -hmm. your rate down enough or get you in a more favorable product, Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. So yeah, we're, we're, we're working on all those things. We, we do plan on staying in it. I still like the market long-term. I still like that asset class long-term. Uh, but then that kind of gets into, you know, how I got started. I live in a rural community, so I started investing in the rural communities. Uh, our office is, is in a suburb of Kansas City, about 30 minutes away. Uh, we, we like Kansas City as well, but those rural communities, we, we know those pretty well. And you know, kind of a little niche we've carved out, carved out for ourselves as well. Nice. And so is there anything particular that people should think about if they're considering investing in a rural community? You need to have somebody local to help manage your properties, uh, unless you live in it there. Um, you know, typically the thing I like with the rural communities, and we're talking towns of five or 6,000 people. Now, we're not out three hours, two hours from civilization we're talking, we're 30, 
to 40, you know, 30, 40 minutes from the suburbs of the city, right? So whichever city it may be, for us, it's Kansas City. We're 30 minutes outside of Kansas City. So there's still bedroom communities. So we're still able to capitalize on all the employment opportunities in Kansas City, but people want to live in the small town. They want to live with their family, want to be where they came from, fill in the blank. Uh, so that's you know, one thing is I can't speak to a community that's 90 minutes away, two hours away from the next city. I can't speak to those well because all the ones I deal with are, are bedroom communities. But one thing to know is sometimes they are, you know, house prices are lower, apartment prices are lower. Um, you know, rents are going to be a little bit proportionally lower, but people are still making decent enough money in the city to afford them for the most part. Uh, but they can't afford to buy a house out there. So it's really good for investors. You don't see, uh, um, there is first time home buyers, um, but a lot of your competition out there for a, a lower price single family house is going to be other local investors. You don't see a ton of outside competition coming in to invest in those communities. And it's interesting you bought single family homes. So are the homes contiguous or are they scattered all over the place? Uh, the one that we talked about that package of 16, they were scattered all across the town. Somebody was getting out. We bought his whole portfolio. So he was, he was aging out and having medical issues. So. Got it. And did your bank, was it a challenge getting financing on that or since it was so many doors at the same time? No, no, they were a local bank to that town. So it was easy. Do you have like substitution of collateral clauses in the deal so that you can sell pieces or you got to sell the whole thing together? Uh, we don't have substitution of collateral, but we can, if we sell one property, uh, then they'll just pull that off the principal balance, essentially pull the appraised value off the principal. Okay. And so you'd have to sell it above the appraised price in order to be able to take some money out. Is that yeah, to get it, to get any cash out of it, we would. Exactly. What's up guys. It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know, we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investor. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at myersmethods.com to grab your free four step guide on how to get the ball rolling in multifamily. Now let's get back to the episode. That makes sense. Okay. And so yeah. you said there was um, something else going on with property management, right? Yeah, no. So yeah, my other multifamily mistake mishaps was uh, my first time trying to do an eviction or get somebody out. So this was very early on in my real estate career uh, before I had the property management company or anything like that. I mean, this was, this was like doors number, you know, four and five. It was a little duplex that we bought. And uh, we went into it, one unit was vacant and the other unit had a tenant in there that was behind and the tenant was on the lease. And I was like, listen, man, just, just pay your leave. And he decided to go ahead and leave. And then I go in there to take possession of the unit back. And his brother is living in the basement who happened <laughs> to be, happened to be a, uh, a little bit of a drug addict. So, <laughs> so I go in there and we're trying to trying to get him out, trying to talk to him. Uh, you know, he won't answer my phone calls. Um, you know, we go in there and uh, you know, like, okay, we'll just we'll just change the locks on him, right? And then because he's not on the lease now, very green at this point, hadn't read any of the laws or anything like that, and learned that was a a big no no, apparently. <laughs> uh, 
So, um, so he, he proceeds to tell me that um, if you want me out, you're just going to have to evict me. So I go through the eviction process. He wasn't on the lease, so we serve his brother. Well, his brother doesn't tell him. And, you know, then we go through the whole eviction process. We get we regain possession of the house. Then we go to do a set out. We set all the stuff out on the curb. Uh, mind you, this is before we had our property management company or another line. So everybody's just got my cell phone number. And so I proceed to get a whole bunch of uh, very unhappy calls, threatening calls, et cetera, for about two weeks from this tenant, former tenant. So uh, that was really exciting and um, unsettling for a little bit there, being as green as I was. Whoa. So how long did it take you to get the squatter out of your property? <laughs> I, ever 45 to 60 days, probably. Missouri is a little bit quicker than some states are on, on being able to get people out. So... 60 days so two months down plus the guy that was there didn't pay before so were you down four months uh probably probably three to four total yeah yeah absolutely well then you got them out but then you had to fix it and then you had we had to rehab we were planning on rehabbing it anyway and then they both leased up quickly and we've had good tenants in there and ever since wow so, you know, what we learned, I mean, that one really taught me to dig into the laws, right? So ever since then, we've been into the laws, reference books, um, working with attorneys to make sure we're doing everything correctly. And, you know, in the state of Missouri, if you're an owner, you can go file your own evictions uh, as long as it's not an LLC. But now that we're an official property management company, we have an attorney and tons of processes to streamline it and make sure we don't have any more large missteps. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, is there anything that you should have or could have done differently? I mean, what I should have done was start with the legal process right away, not let the tenant get behind. Right. So, I mean, now, you know, we've, we've got our processes in place internally, you know, with myself and the property manager. So somebody, you know, doing the first late on the fifth letter on the 10th, they haven't paid by the 15th. It's getting filed. Without exception. Yeah. Well, we have to have, we have to have rules in place and they have to be followed and applied to everybody equally. Otherwise we run into the possibility of having the fair housing complaint if we're applying the rules differently to different people. So that part is really interesting to me and I'm terrified of fair housing, which is why I will not touch property management with a 10 foot pole. Mm -hmm. You know, this whole concept of working with the person cause you don't want to evict and have to do the mm -hmm. turn costs and all that stuff. We've had one resident who ended up being, I think she was two months behind. Mm -hmm. And then last month, she got to a place where she was a month ahead. And so I was like, man, like working with people works sometimes. Mm -hmm. We had somebody who was two months behind and then he just moved out in the middle of the night on us one day. And mm -hmm. so how, what's kind of been your experience with working with people, if you don't mind talking about that a little bit? Before we started the company, when I was just managing my own properties, I would be more flexible with people. However, if you own over four units, you still have to apply by fair housing rules. Even if you're operating your own properties, if it's more than four doors, fair housing applies. So that's something I really encourage people to be aware of is you can't, can't discriminate for any reason. Uh, family, no family, you know, race, sex, religion, gender, age, you know, fill in the blank. Unless you're in California, then there's, you know, 
umpteen protected classes. Uh, but Missouri's not quite that way. Yeah, if you own over four properties, you have to you have to apply them um, apply everything equally, you know. And they're like, well, if you go and this was you know the example that the attorney used. If you go and this single mom is crying to you and you decide to work with her, and then some young man comes and he's way more aggressive and you're like, nope, you're done. Well, that's discrimination. Wow. Yeah. And then you can get sued. And those are like $10,000 violations. $10,000. Mm-hmm. If I recall correctly, I haven't, had to, I haven't had to pay any yet. Thank goodness. And don't plan on it because we're keeping everything tight. Uh, but yeah, I believe that you can get about $10,000 at least for fair housing violations. Wow. It mm-hmm. all makes it not worth being in a property management business. I mean, how much money will you make off of a property in a given year? Let's say it rents for $1,000 a month, $12,000, and you charge 10%. That's $1,200. Bucks. Mm-hmm. So but we do carry an additional insurance called, I believe, I can't remember exactly, but there's errors and omissions slash discrimination insurance. So if you do have a fair housing violation, you've got insurance to back you up. Whoa. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't either until I started working with good insurance people. Wow. And yeah. is there a big bump in your premium for doing something like that? A couple hundred bucks a year, I think. It, do you get, do you do that because you're, you have the property management company or do you do it because you're an owner too? Uh, I started doing it because it's a property management company. Even if I was still, you know, before I started the property management company, I was managing about 60 of my own doors that I was either owner in partnership with. And, you know, I was still able to get fair housing complaints at that point at that size. And it was my own properties. And I, and I was, I was unaware of it. Um, you know, there's been, you know, revelations once we started the property management company, once we started, you know, really getting everything tight, getting the legal processes in place uh, that we started learning you know, all the different nuances. Now, you know, you'd say, okay, well, it doesn't make me want to do property management. And that's exactly why you've got people like us that that are willing to do that. And, you know, know the laws, know the rules, you know, just same thing you do somebody that's doing a syndication, right? I don't, I don't know all the rules and the, I don't want to deal with all those filings, right? With, with the syndication, but the property management, I just, I just got into it and we got it figured out. Okay. And so do you guys manage for others as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're managing uh, just over 300 doors right now. Ooh, that's mm-hmm. quick. Um, yeah. What's been the most eye-opening piece of being in property management? And I ask this question because people will say, hey, well, I'm going to get, do a property management because I want to save that 5 to 10% that we pay mm-hmm. the company. Mm-hmm. So what was the question again? What's, what's the most eye-opening thing that you've seen or that you've realized since you decided to go down this path of, you know, manage your own and managing for others? Mm -hmm. I guess one of the biggest things was I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know that we were at risk for discrimination, right? I just, I I learned all the laws and everything like that. Um, That's, that's been some of the biggest eye openers is, is all the, all the compliance that needs to be done. uh, All the, everything, you know, all the details that need to be followed, how much, you know, how much documentation you want and how much protection you want is all, all relative. We've taken over properties. We just took over an 18 unit, no physical lease, no security deposit records, nothing. 
you know, we take them over and it's a one page lease and this person has lived in the same unit since 1989. You know, our, our lease now is including the, including the lead-based paint disclosures over 30 pages, you know, you know, we've got 18 pages for lead-based paint disclosure and then we're, you know, 12, 14, 16 pages of just legal protection on top of that. Oh my goodness. You know, and there's just all those different things and, you know, our lease is, is based upon the bigger pockets lease. I mean, I'm not going to say it's, you know, it's some lease that we created. We've, we've attached a bunch of addendums to it as well to cover us, you know, as we've, as we've learned more, as we've seen more and try to maximize revenue for ourselves and for the owners. Wow. Mm-hmm. I think my biggest frustration with property managers is just not spending money the way they would if they owned the property. Mm-hmm. What do you, since you're on both sides of the table, what are you seeing as being the biggest rub between owners and, you know, being a good property manager for them? We haven't had a ton of rubs, to be honest with you at this point. And that's in the, the biggest complaint that you get, the biggest two complaints you get about property managers. Cause I always like to ask when somebody switches with us, or if I'm in a group with other investors, say, what's your biggest complaint about property managers? They're going to say either they don't communicate enough or they just spend money without regards. And, um, being an investor myself, I was an investor before I was a property manager. I can understand that impact. And I'm always talking to, to our crews because we have our own uh, construction company that performs all of our maintenance and say, listen, we've got to, we have to make sure we're taking care of the owners. We got to try to do this as quickly as possible, as economically as possible. You know, when we're replacing a fridge, we don't need to buy the Cadillac fridge, right? We just, we just need a basic fridge. If we're going to be doing some repair, like let's make sure that it's adding value. Let's make sure that it's protecting them the owners in the long term, right? Let's make sure we're not getting, we're going to be getting exposed to or getting sued for mold or lead-based paint or some other thing that we can get sued for in this world. <laughs> yeah, no, we do. We try to keep the cost down. That's a tough one. That's a tough one because you get out there and they're like, well, why did you spend $150 doing this? I said, well, you had a leak. It was going to cause mold. Tenants love to talk about how much black mold they've got. There's 10,000 different types of mold and mildews out there, but every single one of them that a tenant sees is 100% black mold to them. You know, I, I dealt with this and it turns out like that's people, like if you do the research on black mold, you'll be really surprised what you find. And I'll leave it there for, cause I, I don't want to be sued for anything. Right. But yeah. research on what black mold really is. And you'll be absolutely surprised at what you find. and how infrequently it actually occurs. (laughs) So the last question is, you know, what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Oh, this is so many words of wisdom. Um, Know, know, know the rules for the management side, know the rules so that you, so you abide by them and you limit your exposure and maximize your ability to keep your income up. That's the, that's the goal. And then for, for purchasing, uh, don't cash flow the rehabs. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they're light unit turns, don't cash flow them. That's awesome. Colin, thank you for joining me on the show today. This was, was great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. We'll talk soon. All right. I'll talk to you later. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor, give us a five-star rating, give us a review, 
and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.